Liz Murphy is the chef and owner of Santosha Nutrition, a plant-based, zero-waste culinary business focusing on farm-to-table experiences and education. Santosha is right here in North County, San Diego. Liz serves the greater San Diego area and often partners with restaurants and wineries to bring a true farm-to-table experience. In 2021, Liz also founded Sustainability is Sexy, which is a nonprofit focused on driving innovation within the San Diego community through connection and providing tangible education and solutions to the global climate crisis. Liz also works for Solana Center for Environmental Innovation as an environmental solutions lead, and she in this role, she works with businesses and the community during the organics recycling rollouts throughout San Diego County. You'll find Liz seasonally at Affirmations of Wellness as well, which is an episode uh, we're actually talking with Corinne Smith, the founder of Affirmations of Wellness here in a couple of weeks. And at these events, Liz teaches plant-based cooking. And you get to experience some of her excellent culinary work. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Holistic Wellness, a podcast exploring the science and metaphysics of health and wellness. I'm your host, Brandi Searcy, founder and formulator at Rain Organica, where you'll find holistic skincare in one simple routine. Today, Liz Murphy, the founder of Santosha Nutrition, is here to talk plant-based nutrition. Liz, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I'm pretty excited for this conversation. Um, could you start off and just maybe uh, talk about your inspiration behind Santosha? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot. So let me see how condensed I can make it. But um, what I always say and what you'll like find in like articles and things is that the inspiration or basically the idea behind it is incredibly simple. Um, It's kind of an epiphany that I had myself. And it was that eating more plants can change the world. So at its basic, I think that's kind of the inspiration behind the company as a whole. Um, And what that really means to me is it doesn't mean I'm trying to get everyone to go vegan as much as I would love that (laughs) to happen. I know that it's not necessarily realistic, but I truly believe that that eating more plants can change the world from every aspect for your own personal health, for um, the planet's health and for the animals. Um, So that's kind of the main goal. But in a bigger picture, the inspiration behind it was a long time coming in my own personal journey of figuring out what diet and what lifestyle was best for me. Um, And through that long, probably 10 plus year journey, um, you know, I landed in a plant-based space and that's, you know, inspired me to share that with others. So with this plant-based eating, um, can we dive a little bit deeper into um, because you mentioned kind of three facets to this, you mentioned, you know, better for the better for, first of all, your body, and then also the planet. And then of course the, the animals and, um, just the farming conditions. 
So could we kind of take a look at each one of those aspects? And, and I mean, this will probably tie more into your personal journey as well. Yeah, absolutely. Which one should we start with? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, let's start, let's start with the, you know, with the planet and the farming aspect. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like that we're starting with that just because I also feel like that's one that everyone can relate to. Um, I think that, you know, at this point, at least, uh, you know, on our side of the world, we're kind of being bombarded in a good way with information about um, organic, non-GMO, like kind of just like the basics of this whole concept. Once you start to take a deeper dive into the industrialized farming industry, both from growing plant side of things, so all of our produce, and then of course, with the industrialized animal agriculture, um, it's very difficult to turn a blind eye once you start to take that deep dive, it's easy to turn a blind eye if you decide that it's not something that you want to look into or it's not something that you want to hear. Um, and of course, that is kind of what the majority of our society is choosing to do right now. Um, but for myself, it started, um, and we'll get into that in the next part, but it started with my personal health. But through that journey, I started to learn more about, um, you know, kind of started with organic. And it's like, what is organic? Why organic? What are these you know, these concepts. Um, and then when I went plant-based, I then started to look into the animal agriculture, which, um, you know, kind of drew me into the animal rights activism area. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's no, I think it's, it's not a hidden idea that industrialized agriculture, um, both on the produce and the animal side of things is, is a huge contributing factor to the climate crisis. Um, for many, many reasons, um, you know, and, and there's so much information that people can find a- about all of those things. Uh, and it's just immense and overwhelming. And, um, you know, and I feel really responsible to do at least my personal part in that by choosing to support as much of a sustainable food system as I can. Um, and that doesn't mean I'm perfect. Um, and that's one thing I always like to talk about with people is like, I am very much not perfect. I'm always learning. Um, you know, I'm, I, I still purchase things in, in plastic when I want a product that comes in plastic, but I avoid it as much as I can. Um, and there's just so many ways that we can choose individual actions that will make a difference. Uh, and eating plant forward or eating more plants is one way that we can do that. Um, and of course, there are many, many others as well. But yeah, I think another thing is that when we look at what's happening with our industrialized agriculture industry, it can be a little bit discouraging as well. Um, because at the end of the day, for any of these global issues that are happening, the only way that any of it's going to change is through corporate responsibility. So mm-hmm. individual actions can feel small. Um, but I've seen firsthand the difference that it can make by setting examples, inspiring others. Um, and that makes its way up to the top. So I truly believe in grassroots. And that's kind of what, you know, Santosha and everything else that I'm working on would fall under. Yeah, I don't want to leave this topic just yet because I think this is this is the piece of it that's so important because we have, you know, we've moved very much away from an agrarian in a very short amount of time from an agrarian society into this industrialized farming society. And before before we leave this topic, I think just this focus on how much of this industrial farming growing the plants and, and the food, the 
yeah, the plant-based foods is going to support then the meat market. Um, yeah. So, and I think that's something, I mean, cause I, I feel like, yeah, I, I mean, even myself, this is something that while I'm highly passionate about, I haven't dedicated time to researching. And so mm -hmm. I, it, it is, it's hard to find, um, it's hard to find good information. I feel like in this area, the only piece that I've kind of dive deep into is the glyphosate part of it. And even that is super confusing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's like one piece, like, well, obviously like yeah. one piece that's affecting a lot of humans. Um, you know, if for any listeners that aren't familiar, I'm assuming that most people that listen to this podcast are familiar with glyphosate and what it is. Um, but a lot of these, you know, you can take, I think like you have to kind of look at it in pieces. So that would fall under for me um, more of the like non-GMO organic, like why people are kind of attempting to learn more about and find answers for healthful reasons, um, because they're finding that themselves and their communities are being affected, um, their bodies are being affected by the way that we have developed our agricultural system, um, you know, with different pesticides um, and and uh, different modifications to the food that are causing us to have reactions, um, myself included. Uh, and then, so that's one piece. Uh, and then that's where we kind of like are trying to move towards organic. But then you have the piece where industrialized agriculture, and this is something that I focus a lot on, um, its effect on our global soil health and how that's going to affect future generations of food. Uh, and something that you mentioned was how quickly the way that we farm has changed. Um, and that has a lot, there's so many pieces to that. Um, I think that a lot of the things that are affecting the climate crisis, like our, our farming system, um, single-use plastic, um, like a lot of these issues were not born out of, you know, uh, an idea to, to cause problems. These were created because the people that invented them originally thought that they were going to have a positive impact on the world. We're going to be able to feed our growing population by industrializing our agricultural system. We're going to be able to save a lot of time and money and create convenience, um, say even save water through single-use plastic. Um, and, you know, like always, <laughs> we have just kind of taken things too far. Um, and so in regards to soil health, the reason that I like to mention this is because I think a lot of people aren't aware of it. I'm going to shout out one of my favorite documentaries about this that I think gives you the best information. Um, and it's called The Need to Grow. Um, and it focuses specifically on our global soil health. Um, it talks about um, why we are losing soil health at such a rapid rate across the globe. And the, the main reasons for it are monocropping, which is the most common practice in industrialized agriculture. And what that means is that um, really common, especially with crops like corn and soil and, and soy that are so popular for fillers, for animal feed um, that we need a lot of in a world where we have a lot of processed food, we have you know so much animal agriculture that needs um, to be fed. They're not switching the crops. And when you have, for example, uh, you're growing a crop of corn, that corn is taking specific nutrients out of the soil and maybe giving some of it back. Um, and so throughout human history, it was known and farmer, smaller farmers that are still practicing this, it's very important to rotate crops so that you are taking different nutrients out of the soil and giving different nutrients back and rotating those out so that you are 
regenerating and keeping the soil healthy so that the future crops will have nutrients to absorb. And we're essentially killing our soil across the globe by growing these insanely massive crops over and over and over on the same soil and using pesticides and all these different things that are killing our soil. Um, and, you know, there's, there's some, I'm not going to like throw out a ton of statistics, but one of the ones that sticks out to me is that, um, you know, if we are to continue the way that we currently are without making changes, uh, you know, there's an estimation, I'm not going to be exact, somewhere between like 60 and 100 years of farmable soil left on the globe. Wow. Um, because we're killing it. We're still going to be able to grow things, but we're not going to be growing nutrient-dense food in any way. Um, and a lot of places are not going to be able to plant because the soil is too, it just basically turns into dirt. So like there's a, there's a significant difference between biodiverse, rich soil and dirt. <laughs> and, you know, and dirt is that kind of hard stuff. I think you see it a lot in San Diego when we try to plant gardens. It's just this like hard rock of soil that's in our backyard um, or of dirt. So um, that is a huge one for me. Um, and so there's this whole movement towards regenerative agriculture, um, you know, small and large farms attempting to, to I would say change, but I, I hate, always hate using the word change when I'm talking about any of these subjects because in a, we're actually going back right. <laughs> to places yeah. that were have been around for most of human history, um, you know, prior to these inventions and these ideas you know, some of them as small as 50 years ago. So whether we're talking about single-use plastic or, uh, you know, agriculture and the way we do it today, it's more of going backwards to go to move forwards versus changing or this like radicalization. Because in reality, it's just kind of taking what we used to do, mixing it with the incredible modern science that we have in order to, to attack the climate crisis. I love that you mentioned biodiversity and when you were talking about this, because um, I feel like that's another piece of it that is so often lost is that we really view, you know, the soil that we're planting in as being truly biodiverse. So could we maybe, um, and then this might lead a little bit more into the organic versus um, conventional or industrial fertilizers. Um, yeah. You know the difference between those and what they do to the to the soil yeah and i think you know for people that have never gardened or like farmed they might not be as familiar with like the soil that you potentially are working with um and you can tell the difference you know if you pick up a, a handful of dirt and you pick up a handful of soil the dirt is going to generally be like crumbly um you know a lighter color you're not going to see any like organisms and a really healthy biodiverse soil is gonna like smell like what we consider dirt to smell like it's gonna you know smell rich it's gonna be very moist it's gonna you're gonna see things crawling through it um you know and that's kind of what you you think of as biodiversity and i think a lot of people associate the word biodiversity with rightfully so with like ecosystems like the Amazon rainforest or the way that we're killing biodiversity um, kind of on a larger scale. But this is kind of goes into the biodiversity on a microscopic level. And you can follow that to like the biodiversity of our own gut microbiome, right? Like it kind of just goes in and <laughs> pieces down um, and almost mirrors each other, uh, you know, as so many things do uh, in nature. 
And, and yeah, so that biodiversity in the soil is being taken away by the monocropping, is being taken away by conventional uses of fertilizer. Um, you know, if you follow the use of conventional pesticides, it goes all the way back to World War One, um, and they were developed. They were actually like chemical warfare um, that were then after their that use was finished, the companies decided, oh, we could use this to kill like the pests that are killing our food, which again, they had to know that it would be detrimental to human health, but it also was a way to increase the amount of food that was able to be grown at the time with a growing population post-war. And so I don't like to put like a lot of negative blame you know, I think that we, of course, can and should when it comes to the profitization of all of these things. Um, but in, you know, I like to think of it from a lot of perspectives of like, okay, what was what could have been the reasoning behind it as well? Or what was the reasoning behind it for like a positive global impact that unfortunately has gone the other way? Um, so yeah, we lost that biodiversity in such a major amount of our global earth um, and farming earth. And so there's a great movement, especially with smaller local farms, um, to regenerate that through a lot of hard work uh, by, you know, of course, composting, adding amendments, um, you know, uh, rotating their crops, planting native plants, like all this way to bring that diversity back to the soil um, and create this movement to help us basically save our global food system. Okay. All right, switching gears a little bit and talking about what it is for, you know, each one of our bodies and here, I'll let you speak to your own experience. Yeah. Um, so on my own experience, like I'll try to do this quick and I'm like, so tall. I just a podcast, I guess I should talk, but <laughs> talk, I get that. Um, so when I was, so I'm 31 now, when I was 19 and like a few years prior to turning 19, I started to experience um some symptoms that were kind of like I went to doctor after doctor I couldn't figure out what was going on um and it, it was just kind of generalized things like um fatigue inflammation joint pain um you know a lot of food intolerances um so the first thing that we figured out was that I was having reactions to um wheat not the gluten protein not celiacs but wheat which is often associated with glyphosate and um, like gastrointestinal reactions that people are having to pesticides and food um, and like the modifications and different things like wheat specifically. Um, and, and it just couldn't really figure out what was going on. Um, in the long run, I was eventually diagnosed with like an autoimmune, but the first thing that I was able to do that I could control was my diet. Um, and I will say like at the time I was basically the opposite, not the opposite of vegan because I I've never been a huge meat eater, but I was in college. I was not in any way a healthy eater. Like I was eating the classic college foods, the ramens, the mac and cheese, pizza, like all these things. That, so it was like wheat all day long, you know, yeah. forever. So that had a lot to do with it as well. Um, but I was able to make these changes um, because it was the only way that I could find some relief from these symptoms that I was experiencing was through my diet and my lifestyle. And so like, it took a, <laughs> can we just pause right there and talk about how huge that is? Yeah. I mean, that, that is incredible because so often we approach this 
completely backwards and are reliant on, you know, just putting drugs into our system to manage the things. Okay. I love that. Yeah, I, I, you're right. I'm glad that you acknowledge it because it is kind of like, it's been so long and it's been such a big part of my life that I forget that like, yeah, that's a huge thing that so many people don't realize for so long or never realize. Um, yeah. And I will say like a couple of caveats to that, like one, it was not an overnight thing um, because my lifestyle was my lifestyle. Like it took probably a year. It took, I would say it took a year before I stopped eating wheat because I was like, this is what I eat. I don't know what I'll see. Yeah. Um, but eventually the symptoms were so bad that I was like, okay, I have to try something. Um, and then, you know, I'd say after about a year, I started to like make that adjustment then with changing my diet to basically focusing on like less processed was like number one. So I started with eating less processed food that helped. Then I started to focus on increasing like my fresh, like produce and, and even, you know, like fresh fish and like different things like that. And then it just kind of with more energy came more movement. So with more movement came healthier body. So it's just kind of like this progression over time yeah. towards being healthier. Um, and the other thing is that not everything is right for every body. I'm like, that's something I definitely acknowledge, not only because I witness it like in the world that like different lifestyles work better for different bodies, but also my own has changed seems like every couple of years it changes and what works best for it, what it likes, um, you know, and I have to be in tune with that as much as possible. Um, and so I have adjusted it and then eventually coming to plant-based, you know, over time, um, both because I just like felt that it, like, as I ate more plants and kind of got away from especially dairy, um, and, and, I, and heavier meats, like I just felt better. So it was like a natural progression. Um, and then when I started to to learn about animal agriculture and animal cruelty in that industry, it was just a, it was like a night, almost like a night and day thing, um, where it was just like, oh, like I cannot support this and I, I won't. So, yeah. 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 I'm, um, I mean, there's, there's so much there in the morality and the ethics yeah. Uh, around yeah just around going plant-based and I know I'm in my own kind of um I I'm very much an omnivore um mm -hmm. there are times when I definitely struggle with the with the meat consumption uh I think maybe along those lines could we could we focus just on dairy for a little bit talk about um would would it be possible to talk about because here I think dairy is also it's such a big part of my diet mm -hmm. um like I can't imagine I, I I could I could imagine being vegetarian I could not imagine being vegan <laughs> okay what are the I'm just curious like what are the dairy products that are like your staples that you just can't fathom <laughs> you know giving up so yogurt is the biggest one yeah. and I've tried plant-based yogurts. They do not do it for me. Um, yo yogurt definitely is the biggest one. However, I also, I mean, I, I love milk. I love cheese. Um, creamer. Yeah. Yeah. Just all I, I think for me, dairy was the last thing too. Like, I think I, you know, I, there's so many labels, but I think I went vegetarian, you know, 
for a while before I chose to go full vegan. And that was because I was like, not, and for me, it wasn't like big staples. Like I, I was fine switching over to vegan cheeses, vegan yogurts. But if I like ordered a pizza or something, I didn't seek out vegan cheese. I just ordered cheese on it. You know, like I just wasn't yeah. really like fully in. Um, and and I think dairy is a lot of times the hardest thing for many people. It's a, what I hear the most often for sure. Um, and so for me, I think that it took learning what, what was happening in the industry to really kind of push me over the edge personally. Um, and I, I will again say that I, I, I am, I would consider myself to be a little bit more realistic. I'm going to talk about my own experiences and what I believe will be the most helpful for the planet and for everyone. Um, but we're all on our own timelines or all on our own <laughs> journeys. Um, and if you are somebody that, you know, is not ready um, or may never be ready to fully give up animal products, I would say the most important thing is to educate yourself as much as possible so that you have the information. Um, you know, it really, it really, really bothers me when people, you know, are combative about, which you are not at all, but when people are combative about their products, but they're not willing to open their eyes to what, where it's coming from. Um, because then it's, it's denial because right. it's, if, if you know about it and you still choose to support it because you're not ready, that's fine. Um, you know, and I think, but I think it's very important to, to know what's, what's going on. Um, the other thing too, is that in regards to animal cruelty, I am personally focused mostly on industrialized agriculture. There are small farms that are, you know, when it comes to dairy, there are small farms that are producing local, organic, well-loved animal produced dairy, but most people aren't willing to take the time money and energy that's required to find that um, and support that. So maybe this is where we can focus the conversation mm -hmm. on because this this leads us into that. This leads us back to what you said at the beginning about the grassroots movements yeah. and about staying local. And um, because, I mean, <laughs> once again, this is something I struggle with is finding um, the local, I mean, because ultimately, when I buy raw milk, it goes bad in two days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I, you know, I don't drink it that fast. Um, so then I'm, I'm left with, okay, well, I'm going to opt for organic grass-fed dairy um, at the grocery store. It, it, at that point, it's still homogenized, which I don't know if mm -hmm. you have anything to talk about the homogenized, pasteurized piece of it. Um uh, not as much and only because at this point I've been so removed from like, okay. <laughs> like the actual, like, you know, animal product space um, that I don't, I, I'm not as up to date on, you know, like all of the impacts of a lot of those things. Um, as far as like, I, I think I'm more can speak to like the animal cruelty that's taking place within yeah. those industries okay. when you're supporting. And when you are purchasing from a store, like a grocery store, it yeah. can almost be said, I'm not going to say a hundred percent, but like 95% of those products are supporting animal. animal. Okay. And that, you know, I think people, is something they don't want to see or hear. Um, yeah. 
And some stores will carry like one or two products, maybe. If the, the more local you get in the store, the more likely you are going to find products that are better to support. Um, and, you know, it's, it's also an accessibility thing, you know, a food justice and social issue. Um, when you talk about all of this, I think it's really, really important to acknowledge the fact that a lot of the more quote unquote sustainable um, products are more expensive right now. And so they are not accessible to everyone. It's something that I see constantly. It's not in every community. It's not so. So I definitely always want to acknowledge the fact that what we're talking about are currently like privileged things. Yeah. Um, but that being said, if you have the resources to support the right stuff, we need to be doing it because not everyone can and it's not available to everyone. And so how are these things going to grow in demand if the people that have the resources to support them aren't? So what is the best way? How how can somebody locally, and here we can drop right into what we do here in San Diego, if mm -hmm. needed. Like, what are some great resources for, for people here, you know, yeah. in San Diego County to figure out where to yeah, I would say area. like a big one for me would be resources like Edible San Diego is huge. Okay. They are like, a, they're actually like a local online and print magazine company, but they like focus specifically on the food system here in San Diego. They provide a ton of information and resources. Um, you know, their last issue focused on, had a big piece on like local regenerative animal agriculture, um, which I spent... I don't even know how long sitting reading it over and over just trying to like figure out how I felt <laughs> because here's and and this is actually this is the first time that I am like publicly saying this out loud as a vegan um a vegan and a vegan business owner um my life straddles a very a line between veganism and sustainability because as much as those intersect, there are some points where that does not overlap. Um, and I think regenerative animal agriculture, local small regenerative animal agriculture is one of those places that it doesn't overlap. Um, okay. Because with the majority of the population choosing to eat animal products, as somebody focused on sustainability, I have to realistically understand that I have to support the idea of regenerative animal agriculture because that is the only way um, to truly support sustainability if you are choosing to, to purchase those products. Um, and so a place like Edible San Diego is you know, providing our local community with information and resources from all aspects they support vegan diets, vegan chefs, so much about our farmers, our local produce, like producers. Um, but seeing them, you know, have that in their issue was just really, it, it basically like forced me to face something that I've been uh, grappling with for a long time. It's not something that I will personally support because I've found my own way to live as sustainable as I can. Um, and, you know, and my choice is to not support animal agriculture in any way, because I don't, you know, at this point, like an, the animal, I don't believe that there is any way to 
humanely kill a being that doesn't want to be killed. Yeah. I mean, so when I absolutely, I absolutely agree with you, and um, yeah. and yeah, yeah, I yeah, I'm still eating meat. But, yeah, I mean, this, so is, this is this is something I'm very much yeah. messing with. <laughs> yeah, yes, and and I mean, I think a lot of people don't even like get to that point of you know um, inner conflict. You know, they kind of just yeah. ignore it. But if you think about it from that perspective, animal like if you can't humanely kill something that doesn't want to die, then there's not a way that I can support animal agriculture, but I would say the dairy industry done in a sustainable way, I again would not choose to consume that. Um, for, for me, it's more for health reasons now if we, you know, get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, it's it's but if you're gonna choose, if you choose to, I would say like dairy and finding like sustainable ways to support that. I'm not as familiar. I know that we have like San Diego, we have one that's called like San Diego Tofu and Dairy. I'm not entirely sure what products they make, but I do know that like the refilleries sometimes carry their products. Like local stores are always carrying their products. So like, I think that's a great option to look into for people that, you know, still consume dairy. Um, there are amazing local cheesemakers in San Diego, both vegan cheesemakers and, you know, um, animal-based. Uh, and so farmer's markets, it's really like a hierarchy for me, um, you know, talking about that privilege and accessibility, but farmer's markets, for me, it's like a start at the farmer's market, you can't find what you're looking for go to the most local store you can find um and then from there if you end up shopping at you know industrialized big box stores just do exactly what you mentioned which is look for like read read the labeling don't always believe the labeling if you're willing to like do a google search yeah um, of the of the because you might find that you know that brand of milk has all these buzzwords on the label but then when you go back to you know there'll be articles and information about their true practices and i think this is something else where i struggle with so much because it'll have grass-fed with the asterisk and then you're looking on the entire box trying to figure out what does the asterisk mean does it mean you know they were finished with grass-fed does it mean they're still mm -hmm. stalled what does it mean are they yeah. actually on the pasture it's almost I would say it is impossible unless you go live on a homestead to not support yeah. negative <laughs> impacts, you know? Um, you can ask any like small environmental conscious brand, they have to make a lot of sacrifices that are not aligned with yeah. their mission in order to get their products on the shelves. And that is, it's, it's really eye-opening because I think especially like when I first started my sustainability journey and was like trying to find the best brands and support local and do all these things. It's like, no matter what I did, I was always like, okay, but this is in plastic or this is, um, you know, like it's a glass jar with a plastic top or whatever. Like, it's just yeah. like, there's never, <laughs> it's very, very difficult and very, very expensive, um, especially for the smaller brands. Um, and so I've, I've listened to and read a lot about um, you know, these kind of like sacrifices that they have to make um, that can be with if you don't have the information as a consumer, which is very hard to get, um, you know, you may not know the story behind it. And one of my favorite examples of that is um, a company called Regrained from I think they're out of Los Angeles, I'm pretty sure they were were and I think are taking like the grains left over from the beer industry and making bars out of them. So upcycling, keeping that grain from going into the landfill. And the first time that I saw them, like, and they still, uh, I believe, come in plastic packaging. 
And I listened to a podcast with the founder and he talked about that. And it was like, they tried compostable packaging. They tried all these things and their products were going bad on the shelves because compostable packaging doesn't provide the same amount of food shelf stability. And so they had to decide between their mission of saving food from going to waste and packaging it in plastic and they chose their mission. And so that's something I always tell people is like, there is no way right now, especially as like individuals living our busy lives to make the right decision every time. And so the best thing we can do is decide what's most important to us right now, um, you know, in these environmental issues and find ways to support that the best way that we can with whatever resources we have. Yeah, I I love that. I mean, I, I think, so it's a really sad situation that we're in, you know, as, as a society, as a world right now, because consumerism has led us here. And I mean, we mm -hmm. are so, it is so different and kind of so detached from, you know, what it was again, even just a hundred years ago or, but um, I also think that I, I love what you just said about you, you really having to stay true to yourself and decide for yourself what's most important. And when you operate from that space, it's a lot easier to make decisions instead of feel like you're constantly in this decision fatigue and decision overwhelm yeah. kind of state or information overload state. Um, I, I mean, there's, Sorry, I'm I'm trying to decide where to, what I think I want to stick with this with this kind of sustainability um piece of it and just well mm -hmm. and and honestly talk about Santosha a little bit more because with mm -hmm. your goal um or with Santosha, I mean you have several you have at least one cookbook I believe you have two or three. Yeah, I have one. <laughs> okay, two or yeah. three. someday. <laughs> But yeah, I do, I do have a cookbook. Um, so when I first started Santosha in 2018, um, it was like a huge leap of faith um, because I was I was actually working in like the corporate world in hotel sales management um, and like working my way up that and like was excelling. I loved my job. It's, a, you know, I'm a very, you know, I need people. And so like it was, you know, very uh, people oriented and but I've always had an incredible passion for cooking from a very young age um, and never was able to pursue that in any sort of professional manner, never chose to pursue that. Um, you know, my parents, I wanted to go to culinary school, but my parents were like, don't do that. And I'm actually really grateful, you know, as much as it devastated me at the time, like that is a very difficult industry to, you know, find footing in and culinary school is very expensive. So it was just always something like a hobby that I always was cooking for friends and family and my roommates. Like I was always just <laughs> like cooking all the time. Um, and I just felt something was missing. I was definitely in like a transitional point around like 2017, 2018, looking for like what is missing. Cause like, I'm happy in my job. Like it's, I get paid well, like what, why, what's going on? Like, why do I feel like something is missing? Um, and so I actually ended up like kind of investing in myself and taking like a small like coaching program like to kind of like try to figure out what was going on and like right away that catapulted me into like 
figuring out that it had to do with like food and nutrition and sustainability and like all these things and I was just like okay but what do I do with that (laughs) yeah it has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now like what am I supposed to do but I have always been someone that when I get an idea in my head I can't really stop thinking about it or stop working on it until it comes to fruition um, which is a double-edged sword for sure (laughs) yeah but um I mean I started the to, to work on this in like January of 2018 and I launched Santosha in June of 2018 so like it was a very quick turnaround of figuring out well like I can tell that this is what I'm yearning to do so let's you know figure it out so in that time frame I went to um some co- like some certification programs through eCornell on like plant-based nutrition wellness health like the science behind it so that I could have a little bit more of a foundation besides just me loving plant-based food um, and when I launched it in summer of 2018, it began as like a tr- nutrition coaching, like a plant-based nutrition coaching business, um, because as much as I wanted it to be food focused without the technical background or any professional background, I had no confidence in anybody wanting to eat my food or anything, but within like four to six months of starting it, it evolved very quickly into a food-based business just because you know I would bring food as a part of the maybe like a an event or something or workshop and the food was what people were you know focused on then I was getting inquiries for catering like all these things so I like quickly adjusted the business to be a food-based business and then over the next year or so pre-pandemic like 2019 I was I had been previously like in the interim working for an, a company a lot of people have probably heard of called Imperfect Foods, which is a grocery delivery service focusing on saving food from going to waste. Um, and during my time there, it opened my eyes completely to the, the food industry and the food food waste um, and worked so much in that space with them while building Santosha that it started to integrate itself, that those concepts started to integrate themselves very naturally into what I was doing. And throughout 2019, it just kind of evolved into this. This is what it is. This is my focus. It's sustainability in our food system through delicious plant-based food. And so any way that I can get that in front of people (laughs) is why I have so many, why I do like so many different things is because anything that matches that description, I'm all in. Um, So like that includes the farm to table dinners that we do, um, cooking classes, going into companies and giving presentations and then giving them a buffet, um, the cookbook, like all of these pieces fit that, you know, sustainability in our food system through delicious plant-based food. (laughs) So, yeah, so that's kind of like everything I listed off is kind of the stuff that we focus on now and the cookbook is incredibly surreal and would not have happened without the pandemic. Like I will say that is my positive from the pandemic is that I run a an in-person event-based experience-based business. And so I was completely lost <laughs> on what to, yeah. how to make money, what to do, where to focus. Um, and, um, you know, I had wanted to write a cookbook, had kind of started the process and was able to publish it during the lockdown. Um, so, yeah. Okay. And then one more thing on that. I love how you focus on the different seasons, because this is something we Mm -hmm. haven't, you know, in all, in all of our talking, we um, haven't talked, talked about that seasonal (laughs) piece of it. Which is like (laughs) the main thing I talk about in my work life. (laughs) So silly. 
Yeah, I love that the cookbook is broken that down that way into into the different seasons and um you know what's what's um actually growing and ripe and and all of that kind of thing. And I'm assuming that you're also because since since you stay away from wheat, that many of your recipes are also uh, maybe grain free or alternate yeah. grains. So um, yeah, alternate grains. So the cookbook is 100% gluten free. Um, so it's alternate grains. Um, there are a lot of a lot of grain free recipes in there. I would say like only a few actually have grains. It's just I just label the whole book as gluten free. Um, and it is set up seasonally. And that is very much for like the two main reasons that I encourage people to support seasonal eating. Like there are many, many, many reasons. I do full workshops on seasonal eating alone. Um, like I did at Corinne's place, but one is the sustainability aspect of if you are finding seasonal food at any of those levels we talked about before, farmer's market, local market, even the grocery store, there's a better likelihood that you are supporting um, you know, organic farmers that are doing it in the correct way and not growing things out of season and pulling them too early. Um, you know, and then on that note, it's for the flavor. <laughs> so like yeah. from a culinary aspect, the flavor of in-season food versus out-of-season food is just like astronomical. Like I can't even tell you how many times I've been doing any of the events, a cook, cook like a farm to table dinner or a cooking class and people are tasting the food and it's a very simple food focused on like the ingredients that we're using. And they're like, how does it taste like this? Why does it taste like this? And I'm just like, it's because I got it from a farm that grew it within 20 miles of here. So they got to pick it at peak freshness. And I'm like, this is what a, you know, a tomato tastes like. I think that's like the most yeah. common one, you know, because yeah. when you're buying tomatoes in the store, especially out of season, they taste like nothing. Exactly. Like they have no flavor. And so a lot of people who haven't tried an in-season tomato, like have no idea that a tomato tastes how it does so delicious so full um so yeah seasonal eating is a huge part of like <laughs> my business and the education that I'm trying to to give people to become a more positive part of their own local food system okay and then um <laughs> because we haven't mentioned it yet you also yeah. have another business <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah so I also run um, or founded a nonprofit called Sustainability is Sexy. Um, it's a 501c3 nonprofit organization, um, and it was founded in 2021. So in like the depth of the pandemic, <laughs> um, and it was founded for many reasons. Uh, you know, it was kind of developed like I had an idea, and then I also found that a couple of my close um, ecopreneur friends that also have like eco-focused small businesses in San Diego we kind of like would get together because we're all friends um and there's just this idea born of like okay like we're all in the middle of this lockdown even pre-pandemic we felt that there was just kind of this lack of connection between sustainable businesses and then between sustainable businesses and the community and yeah. so we were just like how do we bridge that gap um and and so that's kind of like the, the basic idea of how it was born. And for me, the reason that I wanted to start something is because, you know, over the course of becoming more sustainable in my own life, not just around the food system, but in kind of every aspect of my own lifestyle, 
I wanted to bring, I wanted to share that information so badly. And I was sharing it through my Santosha work and platform. And it was kind of muddying the message because like I'm a food-based business and I focus on the food system. And that's what I talk about all the time. So when I was coming in and being like the ocean, plastic, like all these other things, people were just like, <laughs> what? Like, what do you do? Um, and so sustainability is sexy provided me this incredible platform to be involved in whatever sustainability industry project support system I wanted to be without taking away from my real focus um, in the food system at Santosha. And so because it was born in the pandemic, we started with a podcast that is still going strong. Um, you know, it's we're on the third season. It's called Sustainability is Sexy, the podcast. It's very easy to remember. Um, you can find it on any platform. It's a great way to learn about for anyone, but San Diegans very specifically because it focuses on San Diego resources, organizations that you probably don't know about um, that are amazing and so cool. Um, and But it's great for anybody anywhere because the things we talk about, regardless of where this you know organization is based, is applicable no matter where you live. Um, and so we have the podcast, we do community events that where we, you know, our vendors are like very vetted and like basically providing a platform for um, local sustainable resources, nonprofits and businesses. Um, and then we just have a lot of projects that we work on, like education, where we provide zero waste education to communities, companies, schools. Um, and then our biggest, newest project is our zero waste event services. So we did a pilot program in April, Earth Month, um, and we worked with a couple of events to provide them with like pre-event consulting for zero waste strategies that we've found, that we've developed through putting on our own events. Um, and then we, for these two, we were actually able to go on site as well and run like basically waste sorting on site, provide them with impact reports. We weigh every piece of waste that comes through we divert it to the correct stream and then we provide them with an impact data report that they can have year over year data of like hopefully, um, you know, increases in diversion. Um, and yeah, and I think living in Southern California, one of the most like event heavy areas in the world, um, you know, there's such an opportunity to divert the immense amount of waste that's created by these events. Um, and so we're just kind of starting one of those tiny grassroots projects to address something that we see happening um, in our own community. I think one question on that. So when you're talking about diverting the different waste streams, mm -hmm. is it is it still mixed plastics, mixed recyclables, so including cardboard and that kind of thing? So is it just the difference between compost, truly landfill, and then whatever is recycled? Correct. So it'd be okay. the three big ones, landfill, recycling, and organics. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is pretty cool. Um, I, yeah, I'm definitely, I have not checked out your podcast yet, but I really <laughs> want to learn more about sustainability is sexy. Yeah, I, I think, I also really love it. And I think the feedback we've gotten is really good because the episodes are really short. So they're like, you know, like, I think I love listening to a good long podcast, you know, especially if it's full of like all this awesome information, but ours so far have been focused on kind of providing a snapshot of like a cool resource or business that you could like listen to while you walk your dog or like run a quick errand yeah. and just be like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that existed. And then you can learn more about it by looking into it. But, um, but yeah, they're pretty short, anywhere between like 15 and 30 minutes just to provide people with 
really cool information. <laughs> um, I learned so much being the host of that podcast. Um, like most of these places I didn't know about before we had them on the podcast. And so it's a great learning experience for me as well. Yeah, that's really cool. As we start to wrap up, how can people connect with you? Yeah, so um, I'm very active on Instagram, um, as much as I hate saying that, but that is where I am <laughs> most active and it's a great resource to connect with me. Um, the websites for both of the organizations as well, everything for both of them is just the names of the organization. So santoshanutrition.com, santoshanutrition on Instagram and all of the other platforms. Um, the websites always have like a contact form as well that you can just reach out if you want to do direct contacting. Sustainability is Sexy is sustainabilitysexy.org. And then it's actually sis, S-I-S underscore San Diego on Instagram. But if you were to type in, in sustainability is sexy, you would find it. Um, but yeah, following on, on the Instagram platform, if it's something that you have is a great way because for both of the organizations, that's where I'm posting most actively about all the really cool events that are taking place all around the county you know there's usually a couple per month between the two so um definitely following on instagram is, is a great way to um, stay up to date but if you don't have or prefer not to be on social media you can sign up for our newsletters on either of the websites as well okay great liz thank you so much for your time yeah it was my pleasure i um, as you can tell, I'm a bit of a talker, so I always appreciate, you know, the opportunity to speak about these things that are so important to me to share it with new communities. Um, and it's, you know, our first time kind of connecting a little bit more. So um, let's do it again. Yeah, definitely. Next time on the podcast is a transition episode. This will be a solo episode where I talk about the philosophy behind Rain Organica skincare. And in this episode, we focus more on the sustainability side of things and also why a three-step routine is all you need, both on, so first of all, from an environmental standpoint, also from a mental health standpoint, because my stance is when you're able to simplify your routines, you elevate those routines into rituals and you create more space for mindfulness in your everyday. And that's really what it's all about is finding space for mindfulness and enjoying the routines that you have. So the shorter those are, typically the more enjoyable they are. And with this, I spend quite a bit of time explaining how, or, or really sharing, rather than explaining, the development process for each of the formulations here at Rain Organica. And just sharing a little bit of, the, of my mindset going into product development and my goal in making three products that are universal for all skin types. We really focus on that in that episode. Again, that will be a transition episode between the sustainability series and the next series, which is all about self-care. That series will start with a conversation or an interview with Corinne Smith, who is the owner of Affirmations of Wellness. 
yoga studio here in Oceanside, California, again in San Diego County. Karen not only is a yoga instructor, she's also a massage therapist. And we spend a lot of that episode actually with her explaining different massage techniques and which is more beneficial depending on your goal and on your area of concern in a massage. So this conversation is really helpful. And then also as part of that series, I'll share an interview um, I had with Haley Fountain, who is an integrative nutritionist, and she's also practices with Tibetan singing bowls. And Haley shares a like a full 10-minute segment on just Tibetan sound bowls. It's an experience not to be missed during that episode. And also as part of this, leading into Thanksgiving and also lead up to Christmas, I'm sharing one of the episodes I had planned for season four with energy coach Jen Polson, talking about this more over on the Instagram account, Holistic Wellness Podcast, and we'll be talking more about this leading up to that episode. That is an episode not to miss, whether you um, are seeing family, planning to see family that you don't see very often, or whether you're planning to see friends that you love spending time with and wish you could find more time to spend with. This is an episode not to miss. All right, so that wraps up today's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please take a quick second and hit that share button to send this over to them. And lastly, before you leave, take a quick second to leave a five-star review for the podcast. By taking the time to do that, you are helping spread the word about Holistic Wellness Podcast. And this is one of the best ways you're able to support me as the podcast host and also as a small business owner. So I so appreciate your time in doing that. When you send a screenshot of your review to heyatrainorganica.com, you will receive a token of gratitude in return. All right. Until next time. Bye.